Kevin Cruz, CEO of LeadX and author of many books on leadership, wrote an article um, on the subject of leadership for Forbes magazine. Cruz started by suggesting what leadership is not. First, he said leadership has nothing to do with seniority or one's position in, in the hierarchy of a company. I suppose um, that has to do more with bosses than leadership. Uh, but, but you can be higher in the organizational chart, no matter how high you go, and not actually be a leader. We've all had poor bosses who were not leaders. Second, leadership has nothing to do with titles. It does not matter what your business card says or, again, where you fall on that org chart. Similar to the previous one, Cruz says, you don't even need a title to be a leader. Leadership, next, has nothing to do with personal attributes. I love this one. So all those personality tests, Myers-Briggs, DISC, Strength Finders, the Enneagram, may be helpful, albeit non-scientific and merely faddish, but they do not identify leaders. Uh, next, leadership is not management. Uh, managers may be proficient in managing staff, but it does not make him or her a leader. In fact, management may or may not be part of leadership. Again, you don't have to be a manager to be a leader. Cruz then goes on to give several definitions of leadership by supposed experts in the field, um, experts either by education or by practice or by public acclaim. We call them leaders. Are they? These are names that you know, maybe even attended their seminars. Peter Drucker says, the only definition of a leader is someone who has followers. <laughs> wow, is it that easy? But what if he leads those followers poorly? Would we call him a leader? Warren Bettis, uh, widely regarded as the founder of the field of leadership studies, says leadership is the capacity to translate vision into reality. A lot of buzzwords, but at what cost? Cruz suggests that this, that particular definition forgets people, that is, those people who are being led, the followers. Uh, Bill Gates, I guess this was a couple decades ago, as, said, as we look into the next century, uh, leaders will be those who empower others. Well, at least he got the people part, but empower others to do what? To, to, to what end? It does seem like there needs to be a common vision or a common goal. Uh, John Maxwell, a big name about, uh, among evangelicals, I suspect that some of you have even been to some of his conferences, says leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. But again, influence to do what? For good or, or for evil. Cruz suggests that that definition is a bit too simplistic, so he gives his own definition. Here it is. Leadership is a process of social influence which maximizes the effects of others toward the achievement of a, of a goal. Not, not bad, I guess. It, it, it seems to have all the necessary ingredients there, influence, others, a goal. Uh, but with that definition, uh, I guess we could say that Stalin, Hitler, and Putin are leaders. This maximizing the effects of others toward the achievement of a goal. Get your bigger, badder, stronger country to overrun a weaker and smaller neighbor. I guess you're a leader, just not a good one. 
So again, I suppose we should differentiate between good and bad leaders. There are books and conferences and seminars and classes by the thousands on leadership. Google the word, as I did, and you will get about three billion hits. I have many books in my library on church leadership. Some of you say, well, it'd be good for you to read one. The truth is, uh, there is um, so much on leadership that it can be confusing. But as I considered some of those billions, just some, of those billions of hits and charts, they had lots of charts and, and books that I have, the qualities of good leadership can be, can be boiled down to the following. A, a leader is honest and has integrity. He or she is committed or, or focused, uh, passionate, has good communication skills, is approachable, is a good listener, has self-confidence and self-awareness. Don't miss that those two go together. We've known a lot of people that are self-confident, but with no self-awareness, that just becomes arrogance, creative and positive, and also I could have added energetic, decisive, collaborative, and has the ability to delegate. Again, that's an oversimplified list, but those qualities, as I did some research, seem to be on most lists. But what about poor leadership? There were lots of lists of those as well. I suppose if you look up poor leadership, you'd see a picture of Putin. I said I wasn't going to say that. But they would be the opposite, dishonest, unethical, a poor communicator, unapproachable, arrogant, self-centered, blames others and mistrusts those under him or her, closed-minded, indecisive, and it's his way, my way, or the highway. Those are just some of the few, uh, that's just a few of some of the negative qualities. Perhaps you can think of your own list with your own authority, your own boss or teacher or professor or supervisor or parent, and your list maybe is much longer. All this made me think of our church leadership. We recently um, studied the characteristics or qualities of elders in Titus chapter 1. Look at that list. They are above reproach. That's interesting. That means they have honesty and integrity. They are the husband of one wife. Huh, them, huh, that's interesting. That means they're committed. They're not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Um, uh, they, they are not self-willed, that is self-centered, quick-tempered, argumentative, combative, addicted to wine. They are not fond of sordid gain. That's interesting. They're not greedy. They're hospitable. This last is, is primarily directed toward others. They're hospitable. They're loving. They're sensible. They're just. They're devout. They're self-controlled. A lot of similar qualities in that list and the contemporary books on good leadership. Paul could have written a bestseller today. Oh, that's right, he did. It's called Titus. He could have made millions if he just wait, if he was just in it for the money. As some are today, which brings us to our continuing study in Jude. Why all this talk about leadership? Because we have found false believers had infiltrated the churches, and so Jude writes to warn them, to tell them, and frankly us, to earnestly contend for the faith. In one sense, by battling these false believers and not giving into their licentious, that is their morally sinful lifestyles. Today, as we continue, we will find also that these false teachers, or excuse me, these false believers are also false teachers. They are false shepherds. And in fact, that often goes together. Again, maybe names are coming to mind. 
They have many qualities of poor leadership. In fact, I would say this. If you find yourself in a church with leaders like that we're getting ready to study or that we have been studying, run. They are not godly leaders. Jude has compared these men to three Old Testament groups, remember, unbelieving Israelites, fallen angels, and the wicked inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, because of their rebellion, destruction came. That was the point. The unbelieving Israelites fell in the desert, never made it to the land of promise. The fallen angels have been kept in eternal bonds for judgment and eternal fire. And the wicked inhabitants of Sodom face the immediate fires of judgment and will also face Eternal fire, I say, as I have said, I I don't say that with any relish or joy. Jude then listed three Old Testament men, we looked at them last week, who rebelled and faced judgment. Cain, who rebelled against God's prescribed way of approaching him, of, of salvation, if you will, and thus became the archetype of sin, choosing wickedness over goodness. Balaam, who for pay, that is greed, sold the Israelites into sexual immorality. Korah, who rebelled against God's good leadership, he was arrogant, he was self-focused, and we remember that Cain was cursed, Balaam was killed by the sword, and Korah was consumed by fire. Destruction came. The point has been rebellion brings certain judgment and ultimate destruction. These have not been, I know, these have not been easy words to read, nor easy sermons to preach, and Jude is not finished. And I know some of you say, well, he would be if you'd go faster. He now applies these three rebellious men that we looked at last week in verse 11 to these false teachers. Um, Let's read the text, starting in verse 11, just to set the context through verse 16. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain... And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Do you think that Jude is a little irritable? Like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones, that is angels, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which have which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers. They're fault finders, or finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude, you see, has written a book on poor leadership. Only this leadership is in the church as they crept in and they were seeking to destroy it. Therefore, judgment and destruction awaits. Outline of the book is simply what it was last week. Three more Old Testament examples. Verse 11, now he will apply it in the prophecy of Enoch in its application. We begin then with the application of those Old Testament examples to these false believers who again we find are 
Not just false believers, but they're false teachers. They are seeking to sway you. They're false shepherds. Do not follow them. In verses 12 and 13, Jude makes five statements, including actually four, five sort of in the first one, from nature which cover all of creation, water to land to the sky to the heavens. And this is an all-encompassing denunciation. Look at them with me. First, these men are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring only for themselves, just like Cain, just like Balaam, and just like Korah. Hidden reefs refer to submerged rocks which pose a serious threat to passing ships. Don't miss, the the picture here is that these were lurking just beneath the surface, not readily seen. Dangers all about, but they could do much damage. Do you see? We are supposed to be on the alert, on the lookout for this kind of danger in the church. Jude was acting, if you will, as as a lighthouse, warning his readers of the dangers that their faith faced. If that was true then, how much more it is today. These men attended their love feasts, feasting without fear. What what is this love feast? In the early church, Christians met regularly to share a meal. It's kind of like a biblical um, support for the Baptist potluck. They met regularly to share a meal and to observe the Lord's Supper. This became known as the love feast. In that culture, there was no middle class. You were either very rich or very poor. But it did not matter. Socioeconomic status did not matter. Why? Because they were family. The rich would bring uh, the much they had. The poor would bring the little they had. It would be shared with the Christian family, culminating in the Lord's Supper, which was a reminder of how and why they were, in fact, a family. What a powerful testimony that would have been to an unbelieving world, that we actually love each other, that we actually get along even though we might live on different sides of the tracks. We, we used to do the, the love feast, if you will, before COVID. We would get together, some of you will remember, on Sunday evenings before Thanksgiving for a common meal, and we would end with communion. I miss those. Maybe we should do those again this year. In fact, staff, consider yourselves on notice. We're going to do that again this year, expressing Mutual love and care as a family, remembering what made us so. We're a family. It wasn't uh, long, at least in Corinth, where those love feasts deteriorated into terrible abuses. Read about that in 1 Corinthians 11. The feasts had actually become drunken revelries with a distinction, no, distinction made between the rich and the poor. See, the rich would come early and they would eat and drink sumptuously before the poor arrived. Divisions arose. That which was intended to be the symbol of their unity had actually become just the opposite. Can, can you imagine that happening in the church? It's possible these same kinds of abuses were happening in the church to which Jude wrote. We, don't, we, we do know that these false believers 
were concerned only for themselves. Verse 19 will speak of the divisions. We'll look at that next week that they caused. Um, true, write this down, true Christian maturity produces godly unity. You show me a, a, a spiritual godly church and I will show you a unified church, not divided. These men only cared for themselves. The word cared is the word shepherd. This is, again, likely to a reference to the way they saw themselves. They saw themselves as shepherds. <laughs> Are you kidding? They saw themselves as leaders in the church. But the truth is, they only shepherded, they only cared for themselves. They were leading the sheep astray. They were like the shepherds of Ezekiel's day, of whom Ezekiel says, it's a long text, but it's stunning. Then the words of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, there's the word, woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the, with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. This is exactly what the church, by the way, is supposed to be. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. Can't help but think of the parable of the lost sheep, 99. One goes astray and the shepherd goes after him, you see. Not here. With force and severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for a lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field. Scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains on every hill. My flock was scattered over the, uh, all, uh, over the, uh, all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Listen up, shepherds, who are only in it for yourself. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. He's building upon it. He's raising the hammer and he's getting ready to let it fall. Behold, I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. I read that entire text for the following three reasons. First, this is undoubtedly the text that Jude had in mind when he recorded that verse. And second, we see how serious this situation is. God does not take lightly those who claim to be shepherds among his people who only care for themselves. I bring you as exhibits many churches in the United States today who are only in it for themselves. And third, notice how God will deal with these false shepherds. He will be against them. It is no small thing, you see, to fleece the sheep, to devour them, to only seek to enrich yourself as a shepherd, to only care for yourself, to not care for the flock, whose leadership is arrogance and self-centeredness. Notice they feasted at the love feast, fake as they were, without fear of repercussion. They thought themselves above the judgment of God, and they were sorely mistaken. You see, in Corinth, where they abused the Lord's Supper by dividing the bodies, some were sick, some were dead. God killed them. 
Make no mistake about it, this was divine retribution. Next he says, they, were, they are clouds without water carried along by the winds. In the, middle, in the arid Middle East, rain was, is a much needed resource. Clouds coming, promising rain, only to dissipate and not deliver what was seemingly promised was both physically and emotionally destructive. So also, these false teachers who crept into the church promised great things. If you look at verse 16, they, they spoke arrogantly. They made empty promises in which they did not deliver. They promised, no doubt, as, as we've read through the book, they promised, no doubt, freedom and spiritual benefit. Freedom, do whatever you want. Spiritual benefit, and the opposite was delivered. Bondage to sin and spiritual ruin. Like clouds, they were empty and useless. Be wary, listen, be wary, be leery of people who boast great spiritual knowledge, even scriptural knowledge, but fail to apply it. They are vain, they are empty, and they are ruinous. Next, he says, they are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. It's a vivid picture. Autumn trees should be laden with fruit, ready for harvesting. These were barren, that is, not producing fruit as they were made to do, so they were uprooted. Now twice dead, not just mostly dead, twice dead. They were dead in that they were fruitless. Now, now they, had been torn up, they had been torn up by the roots. Jesus has a lot to say uh, about fruitless trees. You remember uh, the fig tree that he approached for fruit, found it barren, and he cursed it, and within 24 hours it had withered from the roots up. Any tree that does not bear fruit is to be uprooted and burned in the fire. So also these false teachers should be bearing fruit, but they were spiritually barren. And, and by their fruit, Jesus said, you will know them. They are good for nothing. Well, they boasted much, saying they had the truth, follow them. They were really good for nothing except firewood. Next, he says, they're wild waves of the sea, casting up their shame like foam. Again, another vivid picture. You only have to walk along the beach after a storm to see all the nasty foam along the shore. You may walk through it. I do not. Jude, no doubt, has Isaiah 57, 20 in mind. Isaiah was speaking of the wicked. He was speaking of the ungodly. And we read, but the wicked are like the tossed sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. Isaiah and Jude compared the wicked. For Jude, false teachers in the church to, to, to wild ways of the sea, simply fomenting refuse and mud to their shame. What they lauded as truth and freedom was actually shameful. Last point one, they are uh, like wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. That is a horrible picture. Read through the New Testament and you see that Jesus, who spoke of hell more than anyone else, described it as a place of fire and darkness. Strong words. See, stars were supposed to be used for navigation. Meteors or wandering stars or more likely planets, which at that time were thought to be erratic courses, were useless for leading anyone faithfully anywhere. 
These false shepherds with their false teaching and ungodly living appeared first to be bright lights, but they only led people astray. Notice Jude says, uh, again says, so they are bound for eternal destruction. We must not take lightly those who are in it for themselves and who lead God's sheep astray. One author summed it up with these words. One is reminded by way uh, uh, of contrast with the Lord whom these men deny. He is the rock of our salvation. They are hidden rocks threatening shipwreck to the faith. He comes with clouds to refresh His people forever. These are clouds which do not even bring temporary blessing. He is the tree of life. These are trees of death. He leads beside still waters. These are like the restless sea. He is the bright and morning star heralding the coming day. These are wandering stars presaging a night of eternal darkness. The contrast could not be more stark. This brings us quickly, very quickly, to the prophecy of Enoch and its application. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me again. It was about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold... The Lord, that's interesting. He's quoting First Enoch chapter 1, verse 9. And chapter 1, verse 9 says God. But he, he took no issue with substituting the Lord. And when we see the Lord coming with His holy ones, write down Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Read that. That's Jesus coming with His holy ones. Jude and other authors of Scripture had no problem substituting Jesus for God because He is. Um. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. We first read about this guy named Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. Simply appears in the midst of a genealogy there. We read that he was the seventh from Adam, counting inclusively, that is, starting with Adam as number one and Enoch as number seven. Genesis chapter five says about Enoch, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. You know Methuselah because in your Bible quizzes or your Bible, you want to know certain facts about the Bible, that the oldest man who ever lived was Methuselah. He lived 969 years. Guess what? You're wrong. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's it. Not much, that's what we know about Enoch. Not much there. Certainly no prophecy that we read in Jude. There is that odd statement, Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Intriguing. What does that mean? We look at the book of Hebrews, which sheds a little light. Enoch appears in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 along, uh, alongside such greats as Moses and, and Joshua and David. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Oh, Methuselah only lived 969 years. Enoch is still counting. Just a trick question. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. There are only three, as I recall, there are only three people in the Old Testament of whom it is said he walked with God, and that is Adam, and that is Enoch, and that is uh, Noah. Enoch walked with God, 
in such a way that God was so pleased with him. He said, I'm, I'm tired of you walking down there. Come up here and walk with me up here. Tells us more, being taken up by God meant that he did not die and that by faith he was pleasing to God. We, didn't, we know then that Enoch was a good guy, but again, there is no mention of his prophecy. It doesn't appear in the Bible except in the book of Jude. You see, it appears in an apocryphal work that, to which I made reference, First Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9. Jude has already referenced that book back in verse 6 when he talked about the fallen angels cohabitating with, um, uh, 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 with women. That's from First Enoch. As I've said all along, that does not mean the book of 1st Enoch is a book of the Bible. It simply means that Jude recorded from 1st Enoch that which is true and to be trusted. While we do not have the prophecy of Enoch in the Bible, apparently it was handed down through the years until it was recorded in this book, 1st Enoch, and then Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded it in the Bible so it is true and trustworthy. And what does Enoch's prophecy say? The same as the rest of Jude. The false teachers, judgment, condemnation, and destruction were sure. Notice they, they are condemned in this prophecy for their ungodly actions and, and their ungodly words. In verse 16, Jude now applies this prophecy to these certain men focusing primarily on their ungodly words, since it is now clear that they are not just false believers, they are false teachers. I think I read um, somewhere that, that uh, false teaching appears in all of the books of the New Testament, except I think it's about five. These men were, notice, these men were grumblers, finding fault, Interesting wording, much like the unbelievers, unbelieving Israelites of verse 5, these men grumbled. But who did they grumble against? Against the teaching of the church, which required holiness, undoubtedly. But then ultimately, such grumbling is against God. To mark it down, to grumble against the word of God is to grumble against God. When you say, when you read something in here, you say, I don't get that, I don't like that, I don't think I'm going to obey that, that's wrong, as people throughout our society are saying today, mark it down, that is not grumbling just against the book, that is grumbling against God. Let me say it this way, those who complain against the church because of its biblical teaching are ultimately grumbling against God because of its biblical teaching, in as much as it's biblical. The unbelieving Israelites were grumbling against Moses and Aaron that it was God who caused their corpses to fall in the desert and it was God who caused the fire to come from the tabernacle and consume Korah. Inasmuch as our teaching is countercultural and becoming increasingly so, inasmuch as it is countercultural but biblical, there will be those who oppose us and increasingly so but they are ultimately opposing God. And Jude is saying to us, he is saying to us, they will get theirs. Destruction's coming. Why? Because they want to, why do they speak? Against us and against God's word and against God because they want to follow their own lusts. They, they have to complain against the church, the Bible, and ultimately God so they can pursue ungodly lusts. They must justify their sexual sin. Further, they speak arrogantly, ungodly leaders that they are, suggesting that they are right in the Bible and the church and God are wrong. 
That's what it means to speak arrogantly. They do so against the church. They would never say it that way. Rather, they say things like this. You've heard it. The church has gotten it wrong. We are not bound by the archaic rules of holiness. We know so much more now. Paul, when he wrote Romans chapter 1 about sexual immorality, he didn't know about the intricacies of sex, uh, uh, sexual um, living today. Uh, that, that which the church from the Bible has called sin is not really sin. Or uh, we are free to live how we want, hidden reefs, dangers around us. Finally, they flatter people. That is, they use people for their own advantage to support their ungodly words and ungodly actions because, as we've seen, sinners love to be affirmed in their sin and they seek to get others to join them. Let me close with this thought. Remember these false believers were antinomians. What does that mean? It means anti-law. They were anti-any law, against the law of Moses, against the law of Christ, which requires holiness. We do not know for sure. Perhaps they were saying something like, having been saved by grace, we can live however we want. Do you not hear that today? And if, if, if it goes against the Word of God, then the Word of God is simply in error. Can I encourage us more, warn us? Anytime someone encourages sinful lifestyles, lifestyles opposed to the Scripture, we should be wary. More, we should be concerned and contend for the faith. The church, I am saying to you, my brothers and sisters, is filled with false teachers who want to live their licentious lives on one hand and their greedy lives on the other. They are only in it to, in it to get rich off your money. Teaching a false gospel, they are not Christians, and their destruction, having done this in the church, their destruction is sure. We must stand for righteousness, we must stand for truth, no matter how counter-cultural. And we know it is becoming increasingly so. Next week, Lord willing, we will learn what to do about it should we find such false teaching among us. Let's stand for prayer. Father, these have been very challenging words. Jude is obviously irritated. He's irritated with these false believers and now we find them to be false teachers making their way into the church, seeking to live immoral lifestyles, seeking to gather followers uh, from among the church, seeking them to divert them from the true path, seeking to get rich off the church. My goodness, it's unbelievable to me that such is seen in the church today. The book of Jude is needed in in the church, the so-called church of Jesus Christ. Would you remind us that this, these words are for us? These words are for us to be uh, leery of those who would speak against the Bible, who, who would try to reinterpret the Bible, who would seek to call good evil and evil good. Would you help us to be faithful followers in the midst of increasing opposition? Even as we live in a world that is 
even outlawing in some countries, just to the north of us, outlawing in some countries. I, I could be arrested for saying some of the things I've said over the last few weeks. But Father, come what may, would you help us to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ? In his name we pray, amen.